I'll be sharing from the scripture found in Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look on him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we did not value him. Yet, he himself bore our sickness and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we all healed, were all healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep, and we have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered him his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. But he was with the rich man at his death. Because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, and he will prolong his days. In his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light, and he will be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteousness, servant, will be justified of many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as a spoil, because his willing submitted to death, and he was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the the sin of many, and he interceded for the rebels. Before we can celebrate Easter, we have to deal with the death on Good Friday. The death on Good Friday was messy, it was gruesome, it was bloody. It was painful to watch, and we rather not deal with Good Friday. But before we can get to the message of the empty tomb, we have to go by Calvary. We have to go by Calvary and see the sorrow of Good Friday, and we have to let the weight 
of Good Friday sink into our minds and linger in our souls. We must survey the wondrous cross, as the song says, on which the Prince of Glory died. Now, I have a Good Friday ritual. Every Good Friday, I watch the flogging scene in Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion. I watched it this morning. It is graphic. It is gruesome. And you couldn't even show it in church because it is too awful for children to see. But it is a painful reminder of what Jesus suffered for us. And a lot of times when I'm taking communion and I hold the little bread and the cup, I run that scene through my mind again so it will remind me of the depth of what that little piece of bread and that cup means so that I could become a child of God. On our journey to Easter, we have to deal with what happened at Good Friday. I'm afraid that we Christians, we like to rush by Calvary and get to Easter. So tonight we're going to go to Calvary on our way to Easter. Let me pray, and we're going to talk about cross prayers. Now, Father, pour through me the gift of preaching. Take these human words and use them to speak to us tonight and give each of us just the message you want us to hear because we pray it to you in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. History is filled with famous last words spoken by dying people and their last words stay with us. Karl Marx, the father of communism, was dying, and his housekeeper came to his bed and said, tell me your last words, and I'll write them down. And Marx said to her, get out, get out, get out. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. (laughs) The great English preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon, his last words were, Jesus died for me. Thomas Jefferson's last words were, it's very beautiful over there. Now, Winston Churchill's last words really puzzle me. Winston Churchill's last words were, I'm bored with it all, then he died. Pope John Paul II's last words were, let me go to the house of the Father. When I mention the name Buddy Rich, you younger people will not know who he was at all. Just us old people will know who Buddy, you know who Buddy Rich was? Buddy Rich was probably one of the greatest drummers of all times. He played for all the big bands. He was a jazz drummer par excellence. He died in 1987 after surgery. He was being prepared for surgery for, the nurse was preparing him for surgery, and the nurse said to him, Mr. Rich, is there anything you can't take? These were his last words. Yeah, country music. Steve Jobs' last words, the founder of Apple, his sister said his last words were, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. Todd Beamer on United Flight 93, September the 11th, as he and the men were getting ready to storm the cockpit and try to save that plane from the terrorists, 
He said, guys, are you ready? And then those famous words, let's roll. I've told you before, but my mother now has been dead for 72 years. I wasn't quite four when she died, but I remember my mama's last words to me just like they were yesterday. They brought me into her room, and I don't remember all that was said, but I do remember her last words to me, where you always be a good boy and always go to church. Now, Mama, I have always gone to church. (laughs) And I think my calling to the ministry began at her bedside. Of all the famous words of the dying, none surpass the last words of Jesus on the cross. Now, those words were important not only because of the person who said them, but they were important because of the place where they were said. And Jesus uttered seven last words from the cross. The first word was a prayer for his executioners. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Second was the thief beside of him who recognized who he was. And Jesus told him, today you will be with me in paradise. The third word was that he he provided care for his mother. He put her into the care of his very best friend, the beloved John. And he said, woman, behold your son. And then those strange words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the cry, I thirst. And then the words of triumph, it's finished. And then the prayer of trust, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Now, of those seven words, three of them were prayers that were addressed to God. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now I want to take a look at these three cross prayers because I believe in them we find the crux of the Christian gospel. Let's start with this one, the prayer of forgiveness. The prayer of forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Now, folks, this prayer is one of the high mountain peaks in all of the Bible. This is a prayer of unconditional love. This is a portrait of grace if there ever was a portrait of grace. And this prayer is the measuring stick by which we gauge our forgiveness to others. Now, if you ever have to wrestle with the issue, should I forgive that person who hurt me? Then you just remember the image of Jesus hanging on the cross, totally innocent, looking down at those people who were murdering him and asking his father to forgive them. True story, true story. Joe Smith was his name. He was a 16-year-old high school freshman. He was a remarkable kid. He was compassionate. He was kind. He was a committed Christian. His Christian faith was radiant. It was attractive and it was real. And Joe had the kind of smile that would light up a room. And everyone loved Joe Smith. But tragedy struck. It was the end of the spring semester. The high school yearbooks had just come out. 
It was Joe's first yearbook. And as a freshman, he was so proud and excited to have his friend sign his yearbook. Remember that? Joe was in the cafeteria with his friends, and they were signing each other's yearbooks. And it was one of those happy high school moments, you know, that you remember the rest of your life. Joe went out of the cafeteria, and one of his classmates by the name of Tim tried to take Joe's yearbook from him because Tim's family could not afford to buy a yearbook, and he tried to snatch Joe's. Now, Joe was a very non-combative young man, but this was his first yearbook, and he held on to it as tight as he could. Tim lost control doubled up his fist and swung as hard as he could at Joe. Joe saw the punch coming. He tried to dodge, and Tim's fist slammed smack dab into Joe's esophagus, crushing it, and Joe went down unconscious. He was rushed to the hospital, emergency surgery, but it was too late. Joe died in surgery. It didn't seem possible. 16 years old and killed for a yearbook that cost $10. How do you make sense out of that? Well, that night, shocked and grief-stricken, Joe's family and friends gathered at the Smith's home. There was a knock at the door. Joe's father answered it, and a man handed him an envelope with the simple words, I am sorry. Joe's father opened the envelope, and this is what he read. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Smith, I am so sorry my son killed your Joe. I'm blind. My husband deserted me, and I'm trying to raise eight children alone. I didn't have ten years for a, ten dollars for a, ten, a yearbook for Tim. Please, please, please forgive. Signed, Tim's mother. Tim was arrested. His mother could not afford a lawyer to represent him in court. And you know what happened? Joe's parents hired a lawyer to represent Tim. When Tim was convicted of second-degree manslaughter and sent to a youth detention center, it was the Smiths who regularly visited him. It was the Smiths who would pick up his mama and take her to prison to see her boy. It was the Smiths who regularly called him. It was the Smiths who sent him regular notes of encouragement. And when Tim was released, it was the Smiths who were there with his, to pick him up and take him home to his mama. Now that is an amazing true story of forgiveness. Wow. And I had to ask myself when I read that, could I forgive like that? Let me ask you, could you forgive like that? It's really sobering to think about, isn't it? Where do you think the Smiths got the ability to forgive like that? Well, they got it from Jesus. They got it from Holy Week. They got it from Good Friday. They got it from the one who on Good Friday was nailed to the cross and prayed that his father would forgive those who were murdering him. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So if the question ever comes to your mind, should I forgive that person who has hurt me? Remember the cross prayer of Jesus. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The second prayer is a prayer of salvation. 
a prayer of salvation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, at first glance, many wish this wasn't in the Bible. It sounds so unlike God. It sounds so unlike Jesus. And yet Jesus prayed it from the cross. So what do we make of it? When you look into it, I think you find something very precious. And let me try to unpack it for you. I found out in studying this, there are three interpretations of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first interpretation that scholars say is that Jesus is quoting Psalm 22 to affirm that he is the Messiah that was predicted in the Old Testament. Now, of course, the Jews in Jesus' day would know Psalm 23. It was well known. Psalm 22 starts with the exact words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 was written hundreds of years before Good Friday, and it describes in amazing, precise detail the events that we're remembering tonight. Look at the screen. Verses 6 and 7. Psalm 22, verses 6 and 7. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. And all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. (laughs) Verse 16. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Wow. Verse 17 and 18. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. And they did that right at the foot of Jesus' cross. Now, isn't that amazing? That something that was written hundreds of years before described precisely the events of Good Friday. But then Psalm 22 ends in a burst, a hallelujah, a uh, doxology of praise. Look what it says. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. So it may be that on the cross, Jesus was recalling Psalm 22 as a picture of what was foretold, knowing that Psalm 22 is a psalm of lament. It is a passionate expression of sorrow, knowing very well that, but yet it ends in triumph and praise and salvation. There's a second interpretation is that Jesus in his suffering is finding strength by quoting Psalm 22. Now one scholar one scholar said, well, that may be an attractive interpretation. But he did not believe that a person in agony and suffering would be quoting scripture. Now, that scholar must have never been a pastor. And that scholar must have never gone through the dark night of the soul. In the past 55 years that I have been doing this, I have seen it over and over again. When God's children are in pain, when they are broken, when they are in agony, that's when they quote scripture the most. Time and time again I have seen it in hospital rooms in waiting rooms, in emergency rooms, 
hospice care centers, funeral homes, all kinds of crises. People quote, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And the passage of Scripture that so many people ask me to read at funerals, let not your heart be troubled. In my Father's house are many mansions, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you will be also. And then that great chapter, Romans the 8, that begins, there is no condemnation, and ends with, there is no separation. It starts out by saying, there is no condemnation for those in Christ And that wonderful verse that we hold on to so tightly at times. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Mr. Scholar, you are dead wrong. In the hardest times of life, God's children are comforted by quoting the promises of Scripture. Amen? There's a third interpretation of these haunting words is that Jesus didn't just feel forsaken by his father. He was forsaken by his father. Now, why did God the Father forsake God the Son on the cross? Who can comprehend that? Who can explain it? The great theologian Martin Luther wrestled with that and wrestled with that and wrestled with that. And out of his confusion, he said, God forsaken by God. Who can understand that? Now, if Jesus couldn't fully understand it, then we can't either. But at least we can say it has something to do with what Jesus was doing on the cross. And what was he doing? He was bearing our sins. He was carrying our sins. And most of all, he was wearing our sins. Look at Isaiah 53, 6. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Now, I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine somewhere in the universe, there is a cesspool that is, contains all the sins that have ever been committed. That cesspool is deep, it is dark, and it is indescribably foul. And all the evil deeds that men and women have done are floating in that awful cesspool. And imagine a river of filth continues to flow into that cesspool, replenishing it with all the vile, evil deeds that have been done and go on every day. Now just imagine that while Jesus was on his cross, that cesspool was emptied onto him. That flow of filth settled down upon him And it never seemed to stop. It was toxic. It was vile, full of disease and pain and every sin that we've ever committed. I have been reading, I have been reading a massive book by the renowned 
preacher and scholar, Fleming Rutledge. It's a massive book, huge book. It's just called The Crucifixion. Took her 20 years to write it. She said this, Jesus took upon himself the role of the ultimate other. Hmm. He allowed himself to become less than human scum. At the e- All the evil impulses of the human race came to focus on him. And when God looked down at his son and saw that cesspool of sin emptied on his head and realized my son has become sin and a holy righteous God could not stand to look at it and he had to forsake his son because he had become sin for us. Folks, all the lust in the world was there. All the broken promises were there. All the murder was there. All the killing. All the hatred among people. All the prejudice. All the theft was there. All the adultery. All the pornography. All the drunkenness. All the bitterness. All the greed. All the gluttony. All the drug abuse. All the crime. All the cursing. All the child abuse. All of human trafficking. Every terrorist act, every school shooting, every wicked thought, all of it was laid on Jesus when he hung on the cross. And folks, we must never minimize the awful cost of our salvation. Now, is it possible that some Christians have become tired of hearing about the cross? Yes, it is happening. And is it possible that we would rather hear about the happy stuff of Easter? Oh, we want to get to Easter and wear our pastel clothes and talk about Easter bunnies and colored eggs and chocolate rabbits and and peeps. And I've never understood what that has to do with Easter. But I do like the ham on Easter dinner. I never understood all of that. And we want to get by Calvary and get to that. Let me tell you what a professor said at the University of Chicago to a group of Christian leaders. I can't pronounce his name. He said this. Any church or preacher who keeps preaching on the cross is not going to grow. The preacher will not be a success and the church will not grow. Because in our culture, what we are interested in is success, not sacrifice. Pastor in San Francisco not long ago said to his congregation, The cross has become a symbol of sacrifice and the acceptance of pain and suffering, and we're tired of it. And we are not going to be a part of it anymore. And he proceeded to tear the cross down from the wall of his church. Martin Lloyd Jones, a great preacher of another day, in his book, The Cross, he said, The cross. The death of our Lord upon the cross is not something to be regretted. It is not something to be explained away. It is not something to be kept out of sight or hidden. See, folks, without the awful pain of the cross, that would be no Easter to celebrate. 
without a death, there can't be a resurrection. Without the death, there cannot be eternal life. There cannot be new life. Without the cross of Good Friday, there would be no forgiveness. Without the cross of Good Friday, there would be no salvation. Without the cross of Good Friday, there would be no forever. Without the cross of Good Friday, what am I going to say to Lindsay's family in the morning at her funeral? What could I say to her family in the morning? Without the cross, without what happened on Sunday, there would be no forever. And without the cross, we would still be in our sins. Folks, it cost God everything to redeem us. And that cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's for all the lonely people in the world. It's for all the abandoned children. That little widow and that little widower who are alone. That divorcee struggling to make ends meet. That mother standing over her suffering child. The father out of work, the parents who are left alone, the prisoner in their cell, the aged who are languishing in nursing homes, wives and children abandoned by their husbands, and singles who celebrate their birthdays alone. You see, this is the word of the cross for us. No one has ever been alone as Jesus was, and you will never be forsaken as he was. Jesus went to hell so we wouldn't have to go. Now, if after all I have said, you still don't understand these words, we'll be of good cheer. No one really understands them, but rest on this profound truth. Jesus was forsaken by the Father so that we would never be forsaken by God. Now, you've risen real good, and I've dealt with some heavy stuff. So let's do one of my little reviews so you can rest a little bit before we go to the next one, all right? Cross prayer of forgiveness. Father, forgive them. (laughs) They know not what they do. And the next time you're wrestling with whether you should forgive or not, think of that cross prayer. A prayer of salvation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the prayer of trust. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, this was not the first time Jesus prayed this. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He just added Father to it because it comes from Psalm 31, 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. Jewish mothers taught their children to recite this verse every night before they went to sleep. And most Jewish children, this was the first Bible verse that they ever learned. And Mary... Jesus' mother had taught him to say this prayer, and as a child, he had prayed it hundreds of times before he went to sleep. And now here he is, hanging on a cross. Life is ebbing out of him, and he reverts back to that childhood prayer. His strength is gone. 
His body is tortured beyond recognition. And yet in his mind he recalls this childhood prayer. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. See, it's the first century version of now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It was a prayer of total, absolute trust. And Jesus prayed it right before he breathed his last. And you know, this is a prayer that we can say daily because we know that we can trust God completely. And we know that God has the power to take the emblem of the cross, the emblem of suffering and shame, and turn it into the greatest victory ever was on Resurrection Sunday. God can take Good Fridays and turn them into resurrection. And like Jesus, we can pray in complete trust, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Because as the old songwriter says, many things about tomorrow I may not seem to understand. But I know who holds tomorrow, and I know who holds my hand. Fred Craddock tells a wonderful story, interesting story. He said a man decided to take a shortcut across a muddy field, and he slipped and he fell into a deep, deep pit. He tried to get out, but he could not. It was too deep, and as best he tried, he could not get out, and he knew he was going to die in that deep pit if somebody didn't save him. So he started to crying out, help me, help me, help me. And a pop psychologist came by and looked down and said, well, I really feel your pain down there in the pit. I really empathize with your life down there in the pit. A TV talk show host came by and said, when you get out, if you ever get out, You can come be on my show. And a religious fanatic came by and looked down at him and said, My, 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 you must be a great sinner. Because only great sinners fall into deep pits like that. You must be a great, great sinner. A newspaper reporter came by and said, Could I have the exclusive story of your pit experience? And then an IRS agent came by to see if he had paid his taxes on his pit. A neurotic came by and looked down at him and said, Well, you think your pit's deep, you ought to see mine. An optimist came by and said, Things could get worse. A pessimist happened by and said, Things will get worse. And then a stranger came by. He saw his problem. That man could not get out of that deep, deep pit by himself. And his heart went out to him. And he reached down as far as he could and he pulled that man out of that deep, deep pit and saved him. Oh, the rescued man thanked him and thanked him and thanked this kind stranger and thanked him again. And the stranger went his way, and he ran into town to tell everybody what had happened and how he was saved from the pit. And his friends said to him, they said, how did you get out? Well, this kind, gracious man came by and reached down and pulled me out. 
Well, who was the man? Well, it was Jesus. How'd you know it was Jesus? Oh, I know it was Jesus because he had nail prints in his hands. Folks, we do not have to reinvent the wheel of salvation like some are trying to do today. All we have to do for salvation is take hold of the nail-scarred hands. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us hope that transcends this dying world. We live and we die. And through Jesus, we pass into your loving hands. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the death you died for us on Friday. Thank you that you reached down into our deep, deep pit with nail-scarred hands and pulled us out of that pit and saved us by your grace and saved us by your death and your resurrection. We pray this in the name of the Lamb of God takes away our sins.